to the New Deal Podcast. Critical race theory is a hot topic in the media today, but what is it and how does it influence education? Today on the New Deal Podcast, we'll be answering those and other questions. I have the pleasure of interviewing a well-regarded scholar in the area of critical race theory, CRT. As most of you know, in the U.S. at the present time, there is much controversy over this theory. Our guest, Dr. Parker, should be able to help us dealing with this challenging theory and its application to education. Here is a brief background to one of our guests, Dr. Lawrence J. Parker, is a professor and chair of the Department of Educational Leadership and Policy at the College of Education at the University of Utah. He teaches and does research in the area of critical race theory and educational leadership and policy and leadership for social justice. In a recent former role as an associate dean, he did extensive high school outreach and recruitment for the University of Utah and the Honors College. Among his numerous honors, he was chosen as a 2021 American Educational Research Association Fellow, and he received the 2013 Derrick Bell Legacy Award from the Critical Race Studies in Education Association. Dr. Parker's current book, co-edited with his colleague, Dr. David Gilborn, is entitled Critical Race Theory in Education. It was published in 2020 by Rutledge. This collection brings together some of the most exciting and influential CRT scholars in education. Thank you, Joan, for inviting me to speak of this podcast to the New Deal organization. We are very um, thankful for the, the opportunity to talk about critical race theory and the controversy that's going on around education and also talk about some of the work that we've done that we've published in a um, journal called Race, Ethnicity, and Education. I'd like to introduce my co-author and comrade friend here. Her name is Dr. Michelle Amio. She is currently the director of a school assessment in the Salt Lake City School District. She um, got her PhD from the de ed Educational Leadership Department in, what year was it that you got your PhD? Jeez. Uh, was it 2018 or 19? It was 18. It's all blurred together. Yeah. And she's been a administrator in the Salt Lake area schools for quite a long time. She's worked in the district office and does assessment issues around equity and social justice. And she is the co-author of a piece that we wrote on applying critical race theory to educational um, leadership issues in in public schools and it features one of the schools that she was an integral part in and so she's going to be also speaking to some of the questions that Joan will talk to us will, will present to us. So the first one is how do you define critical race theory? There are two ways I'd like to put that answer that question. The first way is through the quick uh, genealogy of how it came about in terms of its origins in the law and how critical scholars were seeing how the law was, looked, was, was being discussed 
and what was not being put on the table with respect to why it was that um, civil rights laws were developed in the 1960s that supposedly were, suppo were, were designed to create equal educational opportunities, equal voting rights, equal civil rights, and yet still came up short with respect to really delivering on those promises of equal justice under the law. So critical race theory really came out of that genre of scholars talking about that and really trying to interrogate that notion. And then it floated into education through the works of Gloria Latson Billings and William Tate, who then started to work, publish their landmark 1995 Teachers College Record article on incorporating critical race theory and looking at how schools and educational systems operate through curriculum instruction, organizational theory, um, teaching and learning, school finance, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the ways I wish I use it, talk about it in terms of definitionally for my classes, particularly undergraduates, to get them to understand it, is that I said, look, look, think about it this way. For over 400 years, the United States has been a segregated country race racially. And it's legally been sanctioned that way. It was uh, up until 1967 when you can ha legally have interracial marriage. So that's not that long ago. And so what critical race theory does is try to provide a, a lens to understand this segregation and understand why it's been so long in this country. And it's a, a means to understand why this has taken place. Young people aren't responsible for this, but they do need to understand it and understand that history because it's been so ingrained in the, in the country for quite some time in terms of governing how we live, how we work, how we, who we marry, who we, where we live, where we go to school, everything. It's, it's been tied in with uh, ideology of structural white racism that has been codified by law for so long. And now we're just only 50 some odd years coming out of that. It takes a, a while to really unpack that. And so critical race theory tries to, is one of the theoretical lenses that tries to unpack that system of segregation that was legally sanctioned for so long in this country. Thank you. That was really, really helpful. In some instances, you actually did explain this next question, but maybe you would like to elaborate a little bit on it is, can you explain the difference between critical race theory in an academic sense and what is being called critical race theory in the political arenas? Joan, that's a really good question. And I think it gets to the heart of the current controversy that's going on now. The critical race theory that most uh, people who have followed it comes out of a, of a tradition of really centering race and racism at the heart of analytic studies that uncover and unpack how race and racism has been so central to um, the ways in which educational systems operate. And I guess I would say that the type of critical race theory that we've been looking at has really looked at why is it that we have tolerated the normalization of failure for students of color in the schools and in higher education institutions for so long? 
the critical race theory that's being talked about in the popular media and that's been um, talked to this, that has been rolled through a, uh, um, a conservative propaganda machine for lack of a better word has been one that has used particular tropes that have also served as kind of like dog whistle politics to get on the emotions a particular um, push button is hot button push, 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 it, hot button issues that push through that trigger a sense of, well, we have to equate mask wearing with um, the virus, with what other people are telling us about what critical race theory is, and roll it all together to say, I'm anti everything, and this, we just want to return the school to the basics. Over and over again, you've seen these ways in which the critical race theory debate has been caught up in a, in a lot of the current anti-politics that's been going on. And it then links in things like, well, we can't teach about history of, of what's going on with what, what happened in 1619 projects. We can't teach about um, what happened with the Japanese in terms of the internment camps. We can't teach about what's going on in terms of, of taking away of tribal nation lands um, or issues around immigration because all those are, are going to make people feel um, vulnerable. They're gonna make them feel guilty. They're gonna make uh, particularly white Americans feel like they're, they're being attacked personally. Critical race theory is not about that. It's not about trying to attack white individuals. It's about looking at, syst at systemic racism. It's about centering race in terms of how it is that we still have these particular intractable problems. And then looking at how race and racism can be put at the center of things to try to dismantle those structures that have caused this. I always tell my students, I said, one of, one of the famous quotes by Baldwin was that, that he always told the students was that, um, you've got to understand this issue. You may not have caused this, you may not have anything to do with this, or you may have family lineage that may be a part of this, but it's important to understand what, where we've come from in order to make some changes. And really that's what it's supposed to be about. And um, students can think about how they wanna make these changes overall, but it's, a, it's also disingenuous too, because the focus has really been on teaching critical race theory in the schools. And I know that my colleague, Dr. Amio will talk about this later. And if you go across any school district in the country, most of them are not teaching, have a curriculum design around critical race theory. They just don't. It's not, it's factually inaccurate. In the college level, yes, classes are being taught about critical race theory that connect with it. But at the K-12 level, it's, it doesn't exist. So it's being made up for these very bigger political purposes that um, certain political forces have developed and want to maintain for various um, nefarious reasons. Thank you for that clarification. It's really, really important. And I certainly like the way you present it to your students. Wonderful. Another question is, could you give some advice to school practitioners on how they can approach these upsetting debates and attacks? And should you be proactive and begin the discussion even early in your schools? 
or wait until the concepts are brought up. Michelle, are we turning to you or? <laughs> I'm happy to speak to that as a practitioner and a school leader, central office leader. Um, so we are proactive in our, in our communication with our stakeholders. And we have thought about it and talked about it. Our superintendent um, is really blunt with people about CRT in schools. It's not in our core curriculum. Um, and he starts there. I think with teachers though, um, where they're feeling the heat is that they do ask their students to, to think critically. And that word um, is hangs heavy in the air right now, but really in social science and education, it needs to examine, right? So as particularly in social studies or, or a history class, certainly we're not giving a list of dates to memorize and people to memorize. We have to connect all of that and weave it together. And that means that our teachers are going to ask students to examine, to understand, so that we can dismantle and understand the setting. And I think with that, that's where people get really touchy because suddenly we're gonna talk about race if we're talking about slavery. Uh, suddenly we're gonna talk about race if we're talking about Jim Crow era. Suddenly we're gonna talk about race if we're talking about current events. And I think that um, we have um, a population of people in every you know, school district area, even in urban settings, uh, rural and suburban that um, feel like these discussions shouldn't be had um, because somehow they have some you know, white guilt and that they feel like people are saying it's your fault. Um, we had, you know, as we go into schools to examine the work that we need to do, um, sometimes that comes up too when we start talking about just the achievement gap in general and we show descriptive statistics about who's performing, who's not. We've even seen that, that sense of, of guilt uh, from, from teachers and practitioners um, emerge where we've had to say, oh, no, 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 we are going to address it. Um, not in the way that you feel we're going to do though. So I think that um, from the top down from superintendent school board, uh, the message is just very clear in single, a single sentence, we don't teach it. For teachers, I think it gets more complex because they do have to address those examinations of pieces of history, parents and students. So um, we're, we just ask them to be very careful about it's not CRT, Yes, we're going to teach about slavery and Jim Crow. So um, that's about a pretty simple approach. It's quite an approach. And it's also a balancing act to a certain degree. It but really it, is. Isn't it? It really, it really is. But so important. So important. Um, another question is, how can educators and educational leaders who serve minority students best support leadership practices that value using and teaching a critical lens. Who wants to deal with that one? Michelle, do you? I can I'll defer, I'll defer to, to oh. Dr. Emil because she actually lived this question. Yes, okay. Um, I, I, I can give an example maybe that would answer this question um, in, in terms of the actual practice. Um, so I was a school leader that was brought in to um, do a turnaround in an urban school district. And um, it, was, it was really an interesting experience um, in that 
we didn't, you know, we don't walk into schools with a, with this lens or framework, we're going to use CRT and we're going to do this work. That's not how that works. So for a practitioner or school leader, um, what happened in that case is that it became evident in an ethnographic way that the issues in that school had to do with race and with the systems around race and the views of teachers and parents of each other and how we saw students. So what happened is we examined this situation, um, oftentimes in turnaround, there's this immediate um, you know, jump to instruction and PLCs and data-driven informed pieces. And all, while that all is very important in work in schools, uh, it's like yoga, there's always something more to do or become better at. So we know that, so, but the focus in this particular school, um, the achievement gap there in this low performance school um, and people, uh, when we would first start talking about it, Arnie Duncan actually came out to our school uh, to understand what happened and why we did it so quickly. Um, it really was about changing the narrative about the community and how teachers and students saw each other, how families saw the school. And we did that um, by using that framework once it emerged and we were able to um, hold uh, community dialogues to understand each other. So we had teachers and, and community members not necessarily just parents, but community members in the neighborhood coming together over a meal. And we did this over like probably five series of these in the neighborhood. We walked on doors and knocked on doors. And we did that, it was facilitated through the University of Utah Sociology Department. And we were able to ask a lot of questions. And it's amazing what you can do when you speak over a meal, right? So parents got to say, what they wanted to say and teachers were listening and it became very evident that the viewpoint that the teachers had about the parents was probably not right. And that the parents realized that the teachers also cared deeply, but unfortunately from my perspective cared with a little bit of a deficit view. So the parents brought that understanding to teachers and, and that was an application of, of that framework of CRT. So for practitioners, the issue for practitioners is that we have some leaders that admire the problem and they talk about it and they talk about it. And then there are other leaders that actually know what the problem is and can identify it and use, in this case, CRT to launch their action plan um, in, in support of, of closing gaps and opening pathways for students and families, removing barriers. Um, so in, in that case, that's that was an actionable uh, way that we were able to utilize CRT. And I actually didn't realize how we were looking at it at the time. I was a brand new graduate student with Dr. Parker and he pointed at me and he was asking questions, very curious about this work I was doing. <laughs> and he said, you're using CRT. And I, that, was, that was when I realized that this was a, a, a practitioner using uh, this theory. So it was interesting. Fascinating, fascinating. Yeah, yeah and, and if people want to find out more about it, they can read the article that Michelle's the lead author on in a 2020 issue of Race, Ethnicity, and Education, because um, we did we did a document that whole entire process 
that Michelle was just gave a little slice of in that piece. So people can read up more about that. I would also add on that Colleen Capper wrote a really nice piece in the December 2015 issue of Educational Administration Quarterly, where she has an appendix that breaks down the particular areas of educational leadership and educational administration that need to have a critical race theory lens to, to ask hard in, interrogation issues around what's your organization of your school look like? How do you um, divide up your resources? How are kids assigned to particular classes and particular teachers? What are your rules around discipline? How are parents and community members involved in the in leadership of the school? There's a whole series of list of questions that she lays out that can really act as an opening rubric for school leaders to think about in terms of applying school, uh, applying critical race theory to actual educational leadership practice, to question what's been going on. Because the, I always ask people, I said, well, okay, if you're against critical race theory, then is the current system of what we're doing now work? If it's, if it's not working, then let's try something different because right now we're still caught up in this normalization of failure that needs to change. So I always put it back on other people to say, all right, if you don't like critical race theory, then is can we go back to the same old system and make it work? So far, the track record has not been good. Well, you've given us an enormous food for thought, and I can't thank you enough, both of you, for presenting your work. And as Dr. Parker said, there are places you can go to find out more about this. I know he wrote, as I mentioned in the beginning, with his colleague, Derek, with his, his colleague, <laughs> David Gilborn. David Gilborn. David Gilborn. David Gilborn, a wonderful book on critical race studies um, to take a look at that. And also the article on applied CRT that Michelle and Dr. Parker and others wrote. Uh, I can't thank you both enough. It, it's just wonderful. What I found interesting about the interview um, was the discussion on using critical race theory to engage parents and the, the, the talk that, I'm, that they were having about bringing parents in and having a meal and sitting together and just spending time um, getting to know that nobody was sort of up to anything, that it was this mutual, that, that the teachers really cared. Um, Picking up on that point, Michelle really spoke about how relaxed people become when they sit there and share food together. And it's that combination of just not parents, but she also mentions citizens. So it was a combination of, um, of, of a delightful meal, but discussing a challenging topic. And apparently it went extremely well. And this was, she was talking about a turnaround school. Um, and so it, it, needless to say, there are a lot of challenges with that, but uh, I thought that idea was a really good one.
it actually looks at a focus on systemic problems as opposed to individuals. So it's not blaming individuals. It's not blaming children for the problems of the past, but it is, it is really teaching history properly and including the, the issues that really matter in this country. Um, so I, I really thought what they had to say was, was important. In some ways, what it, this reminds me of is the, a dysfunctional family where you've got all sorts of secrets and taboos and areas you dare not explore, right? And, uh, and connected with trauma. In this case, the trauma of the original terrible crime against Africans and people from who were kidnapped and sold into slavery for generations. And, and, and so like a dysfunctional family, we, we've, you know, fear to actually explore these things. And the very idea that we might want to investigate them and, and have honest conversations is, is like shockingly uh, frightening to, to some people. I, and I think one of the challenges we face is how do we get beyond that and become a functional family as, as a country? I agree. I mean, Larry's, Larry Parker's comment about the normalization of failure. Now that's another way of looking at today, accepting the fact that people of different, uh, people of color uh, just can't do well in school. Mm -hmm. And that makes no sense whatsoever. And so I think to normalize it has been a problem. So it's not just the history alone, it's what are we doing today in schools? I, I think that for the last couple of years, at least, there has been a lot of uh, public sentiment about how parents at large feel disconnected from what is happening in schools. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought that, that things becoming virtual for a little while would sort of remedy that, right? Because then school was sort of like in your living room and you can see what was happening. And I don't know if that's, further the divide or or what it's done but clearly it hasn't fixed the situation and I think that what happened in that Virginia governor's race um, where like the big soundbite was that like parents aren't going to tell the schools what to teach was sort of like the sticking point and a lot of people would point to that as, as sort of like the deciding factor for a lot of voters I, I think that's indicative of the fact that like schools by and large have not done a very great job of making parents feel like they're connected to what's happening in the classroom. Um, and I think that goes back to what you all said at the very beginning of this little portion, which is, you know, you need to have like a very honest sit down uh, and a, a chance to, to really be heard about the issues that matter to you and your family, whether it's critical race theory or, you know, critical feminist theory or other things that are happening at the school. So much of this is about building a sense of community that's a mutual sense of community. And as, as we've been saying for a long time, it's not just in the tense times and in the traumatic times that you need it. You need to do it when things are calm so that it'll be there in the tense times and traumatic times. So people really knew one another as a community, instead of being a bunch of strangers, it might facilitate our ability to have some honest conversations with one another, because it's not a question of being rejected by others, it's a question of being understood one to the other, so that we can really say, you know, let's sit down and, and share, I'm not rejecting you as a person, but let's have, share some ideas together. Continuously, constantly, and, 
in that way, a school isn't just a building, it's, it's, it's a way of thinking and a way of, of approaching our lives. Now it's time for What's the Big Deal? The time when we take questions from viewers like you. The first question is, um, many teachers have been feeling a sense of burnout. Two thirds of teachers in a recent study said they felt underappreciated and a fourth are planning to leave the profession at the end of this year. What can be done to, to get teachers back and interested in the profession? Uh, I'm going to approach this maybe from a different uh, perspective. I think that one of the biggest things we should be looking at now is the strength of teachers unions and the ability for teachers to collectively bargain, not just for, you know, increased wages and benefits, but also for reasonable, maybe even pleasant working conditions um, and, and buildings that are safe for them and students and, and paths to and from school that are safe for them and students and, uh, you know, a, a reckoning with environmental hazards and, and school safety issues and increased in mental health supports for students and for teachers. I think that that's one way strong, strong unions uh, to get people interested in the profession and keep them in the profession. Yeah, in early childhood, power to the profession um, has been gaining some momentum. And early childcare workers um, who really suffered during the pandemic, um, as, as we all did, but I mean, it really, you know, they've been working with an unvaccinated population for an extremely long period of time and dealing with low income families. And, you know, to have, um, as most teachers are, um, but to have, have that pay scale increased because a lot of their wages, they're, they're still, you know, living in poverty. They're still collecting food stamps. Um, they're still trying to deal with, you know, their own childcare issues, but the pay is incredibly low. So having these mobilizing efforts, um, you know, to try to get teachers rates increased in early childhood would go a really long way. Um, and I know that's something Biden has talked about doing, and I really hope that, that, that that's going to be part of the infrastructure investment um, to think about early childhood teachers. Well, and I think the very fact that the younger the child you, you work with, the lower your pay is going to be is just absolutely backwards and, and, and horrible. And that needs to change, Susie. And to relate to your point, Arcady, uh, in a recent report of uh, the, the uh, state of school buildings, uh, the state of school buildings was given a D plus by uh, uh, the, uh, the body that examined the uh, and civil engineers. So you're saying something to teachers and students and the community when you say, we're going to put you into buildings that are not particularly safe, that have asbestos issues very likely, lead issues very likely, and a lack of safety issues, and yet we want you to join the profession. We wouldn't do that to any other group because they wouldn't accept it. And so if you want to bring people in the profession, you got to treat them properly. And part of it is, uh, what is the state of the building itself? And is it environmentally safe? And is it, is it or it could be a leader in the environment but it, in many cases, it's a laggard in the environment. Now for the next question. Snow days used to be so much fun. When I was a kid, we would make hot chocolate and play in the snow all day. With the new virtual classrooms, will snow days be a thing of the past and how should we keep right of childhood going? 
Well, I hope they're not a thing of the past. I think that, you know, there's still an important need to preserve some of childhood. And I think that, you know, snow days are one of those things that kids for so long have looked forward to. I do think we have the ability now, if, you know, we were to be in a situation where um, people couldn't get into a school building for an extended period of time that we certainly could go to that virtual model if needed. But I think let the kids have a snow day. <laughs> That's my vote. Great for you, Taryn. <laughs> I am also uh, pro snow day. That's part of my uh, political platform if I ever run for office. <laughs> Very pro snow day. Um, and I think that connected to what we were just talking about, it's like with our with like crumbling infrastructure, you can't really guarantee that there's equitable access to like virtual classrooms, especially if you know that some places within any community will be disproportionately affected by climate and weather events. Um, and so I say, you know, let everybody have a nice day off. It's usually well deserved. Mm -hmm. Go out and make a couple bucks, shovel in some driveways before machines take over all those jobs too. And uh, yeah, that's snow day. If you have a question for our New Deal experts, please submit your question to the New Deal website in the show's liner notes. Thank you for listening to the New Deal podcast. Be sure to catch up with your favorite episodes on iPodcasts. Also, if you want to get onto our newsletter or find out more about the New Deal, see our website in the show's liner notes. hot chocolate and play in the snow all day with the new virtual classrooms will snow days be a thing of the past and how should we keep right of childhood going well i hope they're not a thing of the past i think that you know there's still an important need to preserve some of childhood and i think that you know snow days are one of those things that kids for so long have looked forward to I do think we have the ability now if, you know, we were to be in a situation where um, people couldn't get into a school building for an extended period of time that we certainly could go to that virtual model if needed. But I think let the kids have a snow day. That's my vote. Great for you, Taryn. <laughs> I am also uh, pro snow day. That's part of my uh, political platform if I ever run for office. <laughs> Very pro snow day. Um, and I think that connected to what we were just talking about it's like with our with like crumbling infrastructure you can't really guarantee that there's equitable access mm -hmm. to like virtual classrooms especially if you know that some places 
within any community will be disproportionately affected by climate and weather events. Um, and so I say, you know, let everybody have a nice day off. It's usually well-deserved. Mm-hmm. Go out and make a couple bucks, shovel in some driveways before machines take over all those jobs too. And uh, yeah, that's snow day. If you have a question for our New Deal experts, please submit your question to the New Deal website in the show's liner notes. Thank you for listening to the New Deal podcast. Be sure to catch up with your favorite episodes on iPodcasts. Also, if you want to get onto our newsletter or find out more about the New Deal, see our website in the show's liner notes.